you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at LAist.com sweeps. I'm Tracy Thomas, host of One for the Books, a live literary event series from LAist. We are back with guests, author Amanda Montel and actor Bella Lavelle. You can find us on May 15th at the Crawford Family Forum. Tickets at LAist.com events. It's Film Week on LAist 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle. Great to have you with us. I'm joined this week by critics Wade Major of Synagogues.com and Andy Klein, reviewer for AV Club. We begin with the musical adaptation, Wonka, of course taken from the popular Roald Dahl book, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, and Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Uh, This film is uh, the third to be based on the Dahl book. Timothy Chalamet stars in the film, directed by Paul King, who co-wrote the screenplay with Simon Farnaby. Wade, what did you think of Wonka? I think it's charming. And it's it's really interesting to kind of plug it into the overall corpus of the Wonka films, because it is it is intended very much to be a prequel, an origin story, to the Gene Wilder film. It erases the Tim Burton, Johnny Depp effort, and and mercifully so. It it uh, uses m- many of the musical motifs from the Gene Wilder film. It adds an, a whole new song score of its own. I don't know why it's rated PG. This this may be the most G-rated live action film I've seen in a decade. Um, it's a wonderful family film for the season. Might be the only perfect live action family film for the season. But what I loved is that Timothy Chalamet isn't trying to do Gene Wilder. He's not trying to not do Gene Wilder. He makes the character his own, this almost Capra-esque, aspirational young man who just loves chocolate, and he comes into town and faces this evil cartel of, you know, giant chocolate giants. And it felt like there was maybe a little bit of a metaphor for Hollywood there, for fighting the studios, you know, um... Uh, Paul King, this is his first studio film. He did the Paddington films previously. He has He's the perfect filmmaker for this. But it uh, the story of how he kind of rallies this ragtag bunch of out- misfits, it just felt like a really wonderful classic American, old school, 1930s, 40s mend, uh, melding of all of those Capra-esque sensibilities with something that's very true to Roald Dahl at the same time. I thought it was charming. That's great. Wonka is the yeah. film Andy. Uh, respectful disagreement on <laughs> almost every every aspect of that. Uh, uh, of course, Wade has a family and I don't, so I can't judge whether it's a perfect family film. Uh, but I found this utterly uncharming, and Timothy Chalamet does nothing for me. Uh, he can't dance at all, and it's clear that the choreography has been worked out around his lack of ability to dance. The score, the only memorable moments in the score are the things that were lifted from the uh, Gene Wilder film. Uh, I don't see how this this character, this prequel, creates the Willy Wonka we know. It just doesn't quite compute to me. Uh, yes, it is very slickly worked out. Um, with uh, a, a lot a lot of welcome slapstick and yes some very good uh gathering of the oddballs who each have one talent to be able to help willie and his friends uh triumph but boy oh boy i thought this was forced whimsy all the way Wonka is the film. It's rated PG in wide release. Now you have to see it and decide for yourself. <laughs> Zack Snyder directs and co-wrote Rebel Moon Part 1, A Child of Fire, sci-fi action-adventure film. Uh, part 2, The Scar Giver, is scheduled for release in the spring of next year. Wait, what did you think of this Part 1 of Rebel Moon? Yeah, I was I was at the premiere last night, which Netflix spent a ton on. Uh, fa- fabulous party and hors d'oeuvres afterwards. They do uh, it at the Egyptian. They did it at the Chinese. Oh, Chinese! And then okay. they put a tent over the, they blocked off the Hollywood Boulevard, put a tent up. It was amazing. So uh, I, I I feel a little bit guilty <laughs> having to say I didn't hate it. Um, 
you know, here's here's kind of the problem, and I've had a real up and down thing with Zack Snyder over the years. I used to just hate his movies mercilessly and and say so, and then I had to eat a little bit of crow when his his Snyder cut of Justice League came out, which I thought was terrific. Not perfect, but really ambitious, and and you know did all of the things that I had always faulted him for not doing. This is a little bit of a backslide, and and I don't want to say that it's a terrible film, but the problem is that he seems to be falling into the Wes Anderson trap of being um, a kind of hemmed in by his own style and expectations. And so it begins to feel like a pastiche of his own greatest hits, and the characters feel very straight-jacketed into accommodating his style and the expectations of that, the slow motion, you know, the, the, the camera flare with the sunrises and, the, you know, the kind of uh, uh, slick, metallic look to everything. It's all there. But there really isn't much of a soul to it. It feels like a, almost like an R-rated Star Wars film drained of its humanity. This presumably was originally a pitch for some kind of Star Wars universe story, which never made it there. So, um, you know, it's got elements of uh, samurai films, especially the Seven Samurai, Westerns, maybe a little bit of Last of the Mohicans, uh, big healthy helpings of Dune. A lot of the look is apparently borrowed from heavy metal, including the, the logo. But... It's still derivative. It just feels as though we have seen every single one of these pieces somewhere else and better done. And part of me was thinking, I can't wait for Dune, the next Dune yeah, film, yeah, part two, to, yeah. to see to see how this kind of film is done correctly. Um, again, it's not bad. It's going to be great for his fans. I mentioned this to a, to a friend of mine who's a Zack Snyder fan. I said, yeah, it's derivative of all this. He goes, it sounds great. <laughs> well, good. Knock yourself out. Um, but I don't think it's going to win any new fans. D- does the plot in Rebel Moon matter at all, or is it just about the visuals and the it, action? It, it matters. I mean, it's kind of standard Joseph Campbell fare. You know, you have uh, Sophia Butella plays this this woman who is uh, a, a, almost like a, she's almost like a Marvel character in some sense, like, like Nebula from Guardians of the Galaxy, you know, orphaned, adopted by, you know, the one of the evil uh, generals of the, the Empire here is known as the Homeworld. Um, you know, they substitute all these terms. It's not the Empire, it's the Homeworld, but they're facsimiles to all these things. And, you know, she winds up leading this kind of seven samurai type ragtag group to almost like in Wonka, except they're not, you know, making chocolate, they're going toe to toe with the evil Empire. But it's all stuff that we've seen done better in Star Wars. We're talking about Rebel Moon Part 1, A Child of Fire, from director and co-screenwriter Zack Snyder. Sophia Butella stars in the film. It's rated PG-13 Part 2. The Scar Giver in the Rebel Moon uh, two-film series comes in April of next year. The Zone of Interest is the U.K.'s official submission for international film and Oscar consideration. The film is in German, Polish, and Yiddish with English subtitles, and it stars Sandra Huller and Christian Friedel. Uh, The film takes us to the house of the Commandant of Auschwitz, Rudolf Hoss, and his wife Hedwig, as the two of them share the home Uh, He, of course, during the day goes to run the death camp next door to the house. Andy, what did you think of the zone of interest? Uh, There was not a lot of interest in this zone for me. Uh, This film is basically one irony played out for two hours. Uh, And that irony being this, you know, seemingly well-to-do family with normal relations and their day-to-day stuff. And then in the background, you can hear occasionally over the walls, you can hear guard dogs and shots and people screaming. And that is pretty much the whole film. And there are two or three scenes where you actually see him discussing the final solution and discussing uh, you know, a more efficient way to have crematoriums. All of that is fine in and of itself but you know sometimes presenting the banality of evil is itself banal which i found here now this film just won the big critics prize from the group wade and i are in the los angeles film critics association uh i don't see it i i was not voting this year but uh i just thought this was so 
one note and that the point was made 20 minutes in. Uh, I also have to say that inexplicably, our group gave it best score. <laughs> and this is a film where the entire score is three minutes of music over a black screen at the beginning and six minutes of music over the credits at the end. There is no other score to speak of. There's occasionally pop music that shows up, you know, of the period. But from Jonathan Glazer, who made the fabulous Sexy Beast, which I thought was a wonderful film and quirky and all kinds of adventure, adventuresome. To me, this was just, uh, like I say, a, a one note yeah. harping on something we already knew. The zone of interest, the film we're talking about, Wade. Yeah, I don't disagree. I, I actually don't dislike the film. I'm going to apparently say that a lot today. Um, I, I like it better than Andy, but I, I think his criticisms are completely valid. They're, they're spot on. And Jonathan Glazer's had a really interesting career. This is only his fourth film. He's been working for, you know, 20-some years. Uh, Sexy Beast and Birth, I both think, are, are terrific films. It's been films. 10 years, I think, since it's his been last It's 10 movie. years since the last one, which was Under the Skin, which I'm not a fan of. And I, I do feel like he, like between this and Under the Skin, he's, he's going into almost more experimental directions. He's trying deliberately to subvert, tr you know, traditional filmmaking, traditional storytelling. And in the process, he's subverting our natural emotional connection to things. And um, that doesn't really work here. I know what he's going for. Mm -hmm. And I kept thinking, you know, I, I've said here before, my mother, you know, was born in Germany and grew up there in the 1930s. So I grew up hearing the stories of what life was like there, not just what you see in documentaries. And so it's always interesting to me when I see it recreated so meticulously. And the depiction of, of you know, banal German life is very accurate and it's spot on. And it's a little bit eerie that it takes place right adjacent to a concentration camp and death but at the same time like Andy said it it's a it's one note and I and I couldn't help but think you know the film that did this right was the white ribbon the Michael Haneke film which takes place before World War one so it distances itself from the events of the future but it gives you the seeds this is the result and there's sort of there's nothing for us to do as an audience. In, with the white ribbon, you look at it and you go, "It's interesting. How are we going to get from there to what I know happened 20 years later?" So, what do you think among your colleagues uh, in the LA Film Critics Association? What do you think was so powerful for them about the zone of interest? That's a very interesting question. There was a there there were some very lengthy email dialogues that went back and forth on this, and I think what a lot of people see in the film is what they want to see, which is a film that treats the Holocaust in a way that nothing else ever has, that kind of comes at it from a new direction. And, and that forces us to sort of see it as if we were there and on the ground. Uh, again, I, you know, based on stories that I know growing up, that's not exactly what, what the film is doing. What the film is doing is exactly what Andy is saying. It's a little bit of a, of a cheap trick. But it's very easy to come at it as an outsider, as somebody who has seen nothing but hyper-dramatized Hollywood Holocaust films for years, and to see this as something fresh, as something more authentic, more legitimate. But I don't think it is. I think it's a, it's a trick. You know, I, I saw the film the other night, and... Um... One of the things that bothered me, and this might seem so trivial when it comes to a movie with the kinds of heavy themes like this, was the sound design of it. Because when you hear the shots, when you hear the... It kept pulling me out of the film and, because the distance <laughs> didn't seem right. It reminded me of when you go to a play and they have off-screen activity yeah. and they play a tape of stuff that's happening yeah. off stage. It seemed that unrealistic to me watching this film. And that is actually why we also gave it score. It was argued that the sound design is revolutionary and is part of the theme and is part oh, of the provocation. I thought that it was that, poorly done. And that that is part of the score. It, it, there is a real division in the group. I don't mind saying that. Some people were very upfront in saying the sound design and the score have nothing to do with each other. Please keep these things separate. You know, this is, this is you're sort of insulting the sound designer and the sound mixer by saying these things are conflated. Um, but, you know, it carried for a lot of people. That was, for a lot of people, that was very effective. It, but it, again, I think it is, is deliberately overwrought 
and it calls attention to itself, and I agree. The Zone of Interest is the film rated PG-13. You can see it at AMC's Century City and at the Vista Theater in Los Feliz. Uh, Jonathan Glazer, first film in a decade from him, directed the film written by Martin Amos and Glazer. It's Film Week on LA Estate 89.3. We're talking with Wade Major and Andy Klein. Our critics will hear more about the films when we come back in one minute. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps. LAist has a new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We Are Where We Eat will go behind the scenes of some of your favorite L.A. restaurants to find out how and why they do what they do. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for the first event where we'll explore how restaurants help make a neighborhood and we'll all have something delicious to eat afterwards. It's May 22nd at the Crawford. Get your tickets now at LAist.com events. It's Film Week on L.A. Estate 89.3. Larry Mantle with critics Andy Klein and Wade Major. In case you tuned in late, I know you still want to hear the reviews of Wonka starring Timothy Chalamet, Rebel Moon Part 1, A Child of Fire from director Zack Snyder, and The Zone of Interest, which has so much critical buzz chosen by the L.A. Film Critics Association as their feature film of the year. You can still hear those reviews by going to LAist.com or by downloading the Film Week podcast wherever you get your audio. The French romantic drama The Taste of Things stars Juliette Binoche and Benoit Majimel. The film is written and directed by Tran Ang Hung, based on a 1961 novel, The Passionate Epicure. Wait, what did you think of The Taste of Things? Do not go to see this movie hungry. <laughs> okay. Don't. Um, it, I, I love this film. I truly love this film. This may be the most French, French film I've seen in over 30 years. That's it's just something. It's dripping with Frenchness. And, uh, you know, the film opens with a very lengthy sequence where they're just making food. It's just, it's like you're sitting in the kitchen with them in 1889, watching them make food 19th century style. And it's not narrative, but it's just, it's magnetic. It just draws you in and you you, you just want to stay there and live in the kitchen. Um, it's very interesting. Tron An Hung, you know, is a, is a Vietnamese expat, lives in France, has lived most of his life in France. But his films have been, you know, previous films like The Scent of Green Papaya considered very very much definitive of the the Vietnamese cultural representation in, in film. He's sort of been the icon of, of Vietnamese cinema. And here he's doing something that is uniquely French. I mean, he lives with one foot in each world, and he clearly has it mastered. Um, what I love about this is, in fact, the relationship between Benoit Magimel and Juliette Binoche. Story of, of a chef, an obsessive chef, and his, his, his personal cook and sous chef, who have this long-standing relationship. He wants her to marry him. She won't say yes. But it's this beautiful relationship that is sort of that is that is lived out in food, and there the way they make food together is is almost as passionate, if not more passionate, than their sexual relationship, and um, the development of that relationship, and knowing if you do know that Juliette Binoche and Benoit Magimel were together at one point, so they have a history that they had to bring back to this film and work out on screen. Um, and then, of course, you know, Tron Unhung has a visual sensibility that is, is second to none. His sense of lighting and staging and shadow and, and contrast is just absolutely yeah. picture perfect. The, 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 the visuals in its films are just it gorgeous. It is so poetic. And, uh, I, you know, you just feel like you're living in, in this, this culinary world in 1889 France. And it's wonderful. And I didn't want to leave. We're talking about France's official submission for Best International Feature, The Taste of Things, from uh, writer and director Tran Ang Hung. Oh, Andy, what did you think? 
Uh, I can't disagree with what, much of what Wade said, but I was much less enthusiastic. Uh, indeed, the two leads are wonderful together, and that really is the making of the film. Uh, in The Scent of Green Papaya, which was Tron's first film, uh, you could smell the green papaya. You could <laughs> smell the things on the screen. It was incredibly evocative that way. You could almost feel the humidity in Vietnam. It was visually incredibly evocative. Here, I felt like I was listening to people talking about food and I'm watching them make it. And I have to confess, I'm not that interested in them making it. And particularly as they go on and on about characteristics of food that are vastly too subtle for my palate, that are, that are just way beyond me. And that may be my failing. Um, uh, I was not made to be a food critic. Uh, it is lovely in a lot of ways. Julia Pinoche is just fabulous as always. And yes, the relationship is very engaging. Uh, but I just, uh, for me, it was a little too much cooking. I mean, that opening sequence is literally a half hour of preparing <laughs> and eating. Real a time I'm not preparation. Kidding. So good. I timed it. Yeah. There you hear the contrast. Oh. We're talking about the film The Taste of Things, the French film written and directed by Tran An Hung. Uh, it's unrated. You can see it at the Lemley Royal Theater in West Los Angeles. And then uh, in February of next year, it opens for a wider audience. Again, France's official submission for Best International Feature to the Oscars. The comedic drama American Fiction tells the story of a frustrated novelist whose, whose book gets, keep, uh, keeps getting turned down because uh, it's, it's not considered to be commercial um, and and what is is uh, typically purchased for, quote, black novels. Jeffrey Wright stars in the film, Tracy Ellis Ross, Issa Rae, Sterling K. Brown in the cast. The movie's written and directed by Cord Jefferson, based on the novel Erasure, written by Percival Everett. Andy, what do you think of American fiction? I quite like this. Uh, first of all, it was great to see Jeffrey Wright in a lead role because I think he's a wonderful actor who has been in supporting roles for just about everybody. Um, the premise here is a very over-the-top satire of just how stupid the white literary establishment is. And even though I think that they are, they're not quite this <laughs> but it's satire. Well, it, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's a satire. Yeah. I mean, he's a guy who's who is just furious when he sees his books in the African American section rather than the literature section, which is totally understandable. Uh, he decides, just as a joke, to write the most to take on another ID of a gangster and write this incredibly violent memoir with all these, uh, you know, just dumbing down his language and giving them exactly the kind of patronizing, oh, this is the real Black experience stuff. He does not mean for it to be published. And of course, as you can predict, <laughs> it's a hit. it gets published and it's a huge hit. Uh, and he is struggling with his guilt. I mean, he keeps trying to sabotage it. At one point, he figures he can stop this whole process by insisting that they change the name of the book to the world's best-known four-letter word. Let me stop you there, Andy, because we don't want to get too far into the film okay. and reveal what happens. But, okay. but wait, but what, what did you can... think about American fiction? Absolutely loved it. I think this is a great film, one of the best films of the year. It's going to get Oscar nominations, especially for screenplay and for Jeffrey Wright, guaranteed. Uh, watch me eat those words if they screw it up. <laughs> but, but no, I think this is a great, great film. Um, Cord Jefferson, it's his writing 
writing and directing debut as a feature. He's been a TV writer for some time, very successful TV writer. Uh, but here he really brings something incredibly personal to this. You know, uh, Cord Jefferson is biracial. So he has, again, it, like as with uh, Tron Anhong, he has a foot in, you know, one foot in two different worlds. And, and he sees a lot of our racial politics through a, a, a for as hypocritical in ways that may, others may not. You know, he sees it from all these different perspectives. And so he comes at this and says, I'm going to tell the story of a black man who is black and who is proud to be black and who has a black experience that does not fit any mold. It's a black experience because it's his. Yeah. And because he's black and you thereby, you have to take him at his word. But no one does. Everyone wants him to be a different kind of black man. They want him to be their kind of black man, the kind of black man that assuages their conscience, that makes them feel better about racial politics. And he he takes this very heady subject and he tackles it in a, in a in a way that that it doesn't feel preachy. It's not a polemic. It's really it's, funny. It's really funny. It's clever. It's got romance in it. It's got really insightful family dynamics. I mean, everything about Jeffrey Wright's family in this movie is really compelling. His relationship with his brother, with his mother, with his sister. It, it you know, they, it's a medical family. They're doctors and and it's really quite com- he's the black sheep of the family he's the non-doctor in it you know so all of these things create this wonderfully textured tapestry that makes you reflect on you know our current politics but not in a way that is is polemical and it, it it's just such a wonderful trick well and i love the idea that he faces this moral quandary so he hasn't been able to get it, published in it so here he's hugely successful for a phony yeah it's basically yeah. tootsie it's a it's a racialized tootsie it's you know it's one of these imposter films and you know some like it hot obviously was one of those two so i mean we get these every once in a while and it's a wonderful conceit to use to make a statement um, without appearing to make a statement. But I also want to say that, you know, was part of our voting, we get sent the screenplays. So I, I got the, sc- the actual physical screenplay. It is a joy to read. Not every well-written film is a joy to read yeah, on the page. Yeah. Cord Jefferson has a wonderful way with screenplay prose. And that's saying something because screenplays can be arduous to get through. His was like, it was like reading a wonderful novelette. That's great. Yeah. Uh, we're talking about American fiction from writer-director Cord Jefferson. Jeffrey Wright stars in the film. The comedic drama is rated R. You can see it in select AMC theaters. Freud's Last Session stars Anthony Hopkins and Matthew Good. Matt Brown is the director and co-screenwriter uh, with Mark St. Germain, and it's based on a play written by St. Germain set on the eve of World War II towards the end of Freud's life. The film sees Anthony Hopkins as Freud invite the iconic author C.S. Lewis for a debate over the existence of God. Wade, what did you think of Freud's Last Session? It's well done, but I just it didn't work for me. And I and this is the kind of film that I normally love. I mean, this has me written all over it. Yeah. The the problem here is that it's it's theorizing about an an event that may have taken place based on the the loosest of extrapolation, which is that Freud met with a, a certain professor. Well, could that professor have been C.S. Lewis? Well, yeah, it could have been 500 other people, too. You know, we don't know. But but he tries to have the—it's appealing because Freud was an atheist. C.S. Lewis, obviously, a, a man who went from atheism to belief and became sort of a, a, the, the preeminent uh, Christian theologian of his era. And it, it, it wants to sort of put those two giants in the room and have them wrestle over the subject of God. The problem is— they don't really wrestle very convincingly over God. Freud is not represented as very Freudian. And when you consider that Anthony Hopkins also once played C.S. Lewis, he played That's the other right. side of this in Shadowlands, yeah, yeah. Uh, he got that right. So I, I, I kept wondering, well, why isn't Anthony Hopkins telling them that, you know, Matthew Good, the way the character's written for Matthew Good is not C.S. Lewis, not even close. He doesn't conjure up any of C.S. Lewis's arguments. He doesn't bring the, you know, the firepower that C.S. Lewis brought. And, and by the same token, Anthony Hopkins isn't really bringing the gravitas of Freud. So it's two figures occupying the names, but not the actual flesh and blood of the two figures they're depicting. And... It, you know, that's all in the writing. The writing is just insubstantial. It doesn't rise to the conceit that it's 
it, it that it's it doesn't well, it, it has an aspiration that it just doesn't rise to. It's it's a daunting task if it you're going to take huge. two geniuses like this, Lewis and Freud, and you're going to have them debate the existence of God. I mean, you you've got to really bring it. You in, have in to that. bring it, but the, but but both of them wrote copiously. It's not as if you don't have yeah, ample yeah. source material to fill that dialogue in to paraphrase. And it just that's the that's the problem I have. I've read Freud. I've read C.S. Lewis. I find them both really compelling and powerful. And there's enough in their own writings that there should have been more meat on these bones, and there isn't. We're talking about Freud's last session, adapted from Mark St. Germain's play. Germain, St. Germain writing it with Matt Brown. Brown directing the film, Anthony Hopkins and Matthew Good. It's a two-hander, the, only the two actors wait? Is that no, right? No, there, there, there are others, more? but it's, it is for the most part a two-hander. Yeah. It's rated PG-13. You can see it at Lemley's Royal Theater in West Los Angeles. It opens next Thursday and goes into wider release in the new year. Uh, we can at least get started on the Japanese action film Godzilla Minus One, written and directed by Takashi Yamazaki. Andy, just get us started, please, on Godzilla Minus One. Uh, this is the Godzilla film that Godzilla fans have been waiting for. <laughs> uh, I, this is probably my second or third favorite film of the week. It absolutely delivers without a touch of campiness. Yeah, hold hold that and we'll come back to it. Godzilla Minus One is the film from Takashi Yamazaki. It's rated PG-13 in Japanese with English subtitles. The film actually released uh, just a couple of weeks ago, but we weren't able to include it in Film Week without the a screening they were, they were able to attend. So we're uh, catching up on the film right now. We'll also hear about the documentary on the artist Un Selm Kiefer, uh, who's a particularly innovative painter and sculptor, Vim Vendors, the filmmaker, turned his attention to Anselm in a new documentary. We'll hear about that. We also have a documentary coming up on Jean-Luc Godard, the filmmaker, as well. You're listening to Film Week on LAist 89.3. More to come from Andy and Wade. It's Film Week on LAist 89.3. In case you just joined us and you feel like, gee, I want to hear all the reviews that came before, it's not too late to do that. You can get the podcast wherever you get your audio or at LAist.com. Our critics this week from AV Club, Andy Klein, and Synagogues.com, Wade Major. We're talking about Godzilla Minus One, which has been out for a couple of weeks now from writer-director Takashi Yamazaki and uh, scoring very high points with Godzilla fans. We'll hear more of what Andy has to say, but Wade, uh, did, did you like it as much as Andy? I didn't like it as much as Andy. I don't dislike it. There I go again. Um, I, it's fine. You know, I grew up on the Ashiro Honda films. Yeah. From you know the, I mean, as a kid, all from the from the fifties all the way into the seventies, and you know, I enjoyed those for what they were. They're you know kind of cheap and cheesy, but for you know as Mothra. a kid, you, you love them. <laughs> and this is like a really big budget, you know, high end version of those. It still has the the weepy Japanese melodrama. It's got all the pieces that. The those films had, and I think that's partly what Andy means. He can correct me if I if I'm wrong when he says this is the the Godzilla movie people have been waiting for. They want it to have all of those elements from those earlier films. They don't want Godzilla attacking New York or Baltimore, or yeah. London. They want Godzilla attacking Tokyo. Godzilla is supposed to attack Tokyo. These are the things that are supposed to happen. The 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 Roland Emmerich film and the Gareth Edwards movie from 1998 and 2014 both tried to give Godzilla a more realistic physical appearance, make him look more dinosaur-like. Apparently, people don't want that. They want him to look like a guy in a suit. This Godzilla looks like a guy in a suit. So I, I can appreciate that. It doesn't, you know, I don't think it's a great film or anything. I think it speaks to how starved people are for something different. It's fine. It's got some good moments. I didn't go crazy for it. All right, Andy, back for you for a rejoinder on Godzilla Minus One. Yeah, obviously I liked it a lot more than Wade did. I found it a breath of fresh air. Uh, the fact that we had Godzilla without any little 
you know, singing twins and without (laughs) all that stuff. This is more or less similar to the very first Godzilla in the original Japanese version. It's true. Uh, But with vastly better special effects. And yes, it looks like a guy in, in a monster suit, but it's actually really great CGI for that. Uh, but it, it cleaves very closely to what Godzilla is supposed to look like. It's got the nuclear themes in there again, which have not always been consistent in these films. But most of all, they're, they're, the fact that there is no campiness to this, this is just a good action film. Uh, I was not bothered by the family uh, dynamic, uh, uh, the sort of melodrama aspects of it. I thought that all fit in perfectly. If you have any taste for Godzilla at all, I think this is a must-see. You know, the original, to sell it to the U.S. audience, they filmed scenes with Raymond Burr yeah. where, where yeah. you know, he came in. There was just sort of these strange scenes. It's, it's, it's just, you have to see it in the the original. Godzilla minus Raymond Burr is what yeah, you right. see. Yeah, right, yes. Exactly. As yeah. much as you might like I, Raymond Burr, yeah. I, I actually like both versions of the original very much because as a kid, I initially saw the Raymond Burr version. And because of this weird dynamic of them shooting him separately and editing him in, there was this really bizarre sense of displacement. And the structure of the Mm -hmm. film was very, very odd. Yeah. And all of that, I mean, I think it's one of the best jobs with the exception of uh, uh, the baby cart uh, film, uh, Shogun Samurai. This is one of the best jobs of taking a foreign film, re-editing it to- totally, and turning it into something that is really very worthwhile on its on its own ground. I also think a lot of the success of Godzilla is the name of the creature. Yes. It's just Godzilla. It's such yeah. which it's is such a mispronunciation. A oh, really? How, yeah. It's yeah. A, it, the actual yeah. name in Japan is Gojira. Oh. G-O-J-I-R-A. But, you know, Americans being as slovenly yeah. as we are, we pronounce it as Godzilla, <laughs> and there we are. Godzilla Minus One is rated PG-13 in Japanese with English subtitles, and it's still in wide release. Anselm, a documentary from director Vim Vendors, a portrait of Anselm Kiefer, a painter and sculptor. The film is shot in 3D with 6K resolution. Wade, what did you think of Anselm? So I did not see it in 3D because 3D gives me a headache. Um, so I can't evaluate the 3D for those for whom that matters. Also, full disclosure, my wife worked with Vim Vendors on four straight films, including two documentaries, so I'm, I'm very, very close to Vim's uh, methodology and, and process in that regard. And I have to say, this is an extraordinarily um, meticulous film. It, it took him years to put this together. It's it, I, I don't want to really call it a documentary because it's... You know, documentary suggests something that this film is not. This is almost a a meditation on the man and his work. I'm not familiar with with Anselm as a as Anselm Kiefer is the the artist, sculptor, and a, a painter. Very controversial in some circles because he he dips into Germany's past, into into its fascist and Nazi past, and integrates a lot of that into his art. And uh, the statements aren't always necessarily clear to people. But um, the way that that Vanders takes us through his art, through his life, in in an almost ethereal, dreamlike journey, you're almost floating through this in a nonlinear way, um, it's quite compelling. And, and it puts you inside the art, and I can only imagine the 3D enhances this, but it puts you inside the art in a way that very few films about art and artists ever have. It's not necessarily narrative, so people may be a little bit off, put off by the fact that it doesn't seem to have a, an overt structure to it. It's not biographical necessarily, but it does have a, a rhythm and a pace, and it takes you from point A to point B. And um, if you can, if you can kind of get into the groove that Vendors is creating here, it's quite an quite an engaging sit. 
We're talking about the documentary Anselm, which is at Lemley's Glendale Theater and the AMC Santa Monica 7. It's available to be seen in 3D, the film in German with English subtitles. And Vendors uh, has a, a narrative film that's due out early next year called Perfect Days, all shot in Japan. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so we'll look forward to hearing what our critics have to say about that next month. Anselm is unrated. Uh, and again, you can see See it at Lemley's Glendale and the AMC Santa Monica 7. Godard Cinema is a documentary about the French filmmaker. Uh, the documentary is directed by Cyril Luti. Uh, what did you think, Andy, of Godard Cinema? Uh, I thought this was a very well done job of going through Godard's career. It really is straightforward that way. And it divvies up his career really at, at the natural breaking points. Uh, it's impossible to overstate how important Godard was to film buffs of my generation in the 60s. And uh, that first eight years where he made something like 16 or 17 films, all of them totally different from each other and all of them filled with innovation and uh, just most of them incredibly enjoyable. And that's the largest part of this film. It's, it's the first, I guess, third of the film. And then you get to the late 60s, his political period where he lost almost all his audience, where <laughs> everything is Maoism. Uh, the rest of the film, you see him recuperating from his political period in two different sections when he eventually starts making things that are releasable in the United States again, and that have some of the old Godard to them. I thought this was a really good scan of his career, which, you know, you could do 12 hours about because he was so impactful. Uh, it, it is showing along with his final short, which is nothing basically, which is, looks like it is some experimental scraps that they didn't know what to do. Well, with. I love the title of a trailer of the film that will never exist, Phony Wars. That's the title of the short yeah. <laughs> short film. Well, hear what Wade has to say about Godard's cinema, the documentary on the life of Jean-Luc Godard and his filmmaking. That's coming up. You're listening to Film Week on LAS 89.3. More to come from Wade Major and Andy Klein when we come back in just one minute. How to LA is our love letter to Los Angeles. We'll tell you where to get a yummy torta, a bowl of kanji, and of course, a burger. It's a beef sausage blend, fried egg, grilled onions, and then raspberry jam. What hiking trails to check out. This feels like we're out in the mountains. And where to take in some culture. Lamert Park, they've been fostering jazz for decades. LA is a big place with a lot going on. So we got you. Subscribe to How to LA from LA Studios wherever you listen to podcasts. Start your Saturday with something that will grow your kiddos' brains and get their creative juices flowing. Join us at LAS for a morning of multilingual story times, interactive performances, art making, and lots of kid fun. Bring the whole fam and join us for a super fun Saturday at LAS in Pasadena on June 1st. Tickets at las.com slash events. See you there. It's Film Week on LAS 89.3. Larry Mantle joined by critics Andy Klein and Wade Major. We're talking right now about the documentary on French filmmaker Jean-Luc Godard. It's titled Godard Cinema. The film is directed by Cyril Luti, and uh, it's available to be seen at Lemley's Royal in West L.A., and then it's going to be opening up on Monday at additional Lemley theaters. Wait, what did you think of this documentary on Godard? So Michel Aznavicius, who made, uh, who won the Oscar for the artist, made a comedy a few years ago called Godard Mon Amour, in which he basically just takes jabs at Godard and how ridiculous he clearly thinks Godard is with all of his self-importance and his, you know, overt political pomposity. And I, I think Aznavicius and I probably come at Godard the same way. 
I recognize Godard's significance as a filmmaker. I actually quite love many of the films. Breathless, I think, is wonderful. Uh, you know, the, the, his early films certainly, I think, are very impactful. But the yin and yang of the of the new wave and of French cinema from that period are Godard and Truffaut colleagues who were friends and then became bitter enemies later in life because Godard was the the middle the the upper class Swiss kid who turned his back on his upper class and became you know the Maoist and Truffaut was the street kid from France who became kind of a middle class and upper class you know uh, very bourgeois and 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 sentimental in his sensibilities and so they took opposite trajectories and crossed in the middle and 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 never talked again I am team Truffaut I will say that unapologetically. Godard's films, apart from you know things like Breathless and certainly uh, you know the the more narrative stuff, um, Le Mépris, you know, the Contempt, I think is a wonderful film as well. But he gets on my nerves too much when he really gets in, gets into himself. And I think so much of this is about how into himself he is. You have people analyzing him and saying, you know, he the reason that Godard hates the audience is because he needs them to love him. And by hating him, they will love him. And you get into all of this kind of oh stuff that doesn't yeah. make sense. It just, none of it makes sense. You even have Godard on, you know, saying like, I, I had to make a film that people hated because I, I didn't like the fact that they liked my films. And you almost want to slap him at that point. It's just, it's pretentious on a level that we associate with the with some of the most annoying filmmakers in the 1960s. And they're just trying to be alternative because that's what you were supposed to be. But it doesn't make any sense. And there's no way to make it make sense. And so I get why this film is important. I get why Godard is important. But it all still got on my nerves. And just clarify, we, we do not condone violence against filmmakers. <laughs> Despite that impulse wave, Godard cinema is the documentary at multiple Lemley's locations, uh, opening more of the Lemley's beyond the Royal in West L.A. starting on Monday. Uh, Andy, do you want to just come back uh, with, with a quick response to what Wade said? <laughs> yeah, I, I wonder, I mean, Wade actually likes the same Godard films I like the most. I mean, that first eight years of films are just wonderful. Yeah, they uh, are. However, I... I, I also like some of the stuff after uh, about 1984, things like Detective uh, and Hail Mary and a few others in there that uh, I think are have the spirit of old Godard, even though, yes, they are filled with all sorts of bizarre sort of avant-garde-ish type devices All right. that nobody else would be doing. But some of this may be generational because for those of us who were teenagers growing up on foreign films in the 60s, Godard was just more than a breath of fresh air. Let's move on and talk about the action comedy The Family Plan, starring Mark Wahlberg and Michelle Monaghan. Simon Jellin-Jones is the director. David uh, Cogashell is the screenwriter. Wait, what did you think of The Family Plan? I didn't hate it. I actually... <laughs> that is the theme for yeah, you this week. and I actually kind of like it, although I'm not proud of it. So it's it kind of goes into one of those guilty pleasure things. This would have been a great movie in the '80s, and it's it's one of those um, those double life as a spy, double life as an assassin films. We've had a ton of those, you know, True Lies and and the French film that it was originally based on, Nobody with Bob Odenkirk. Uh, most recently, is very much the same plot as this one, Mr. and Mrs. Smith, in which you have Angelina Jolie and Brad Pitt. You know, two of them in one family. So I mean, we get a lot of traction in Hollywood movies and in certainly some foreign films out of this idea. Mark Wahlberg used to be a top government assassin. Now he's just living a wonderful family life, married to Michelle Monaghan, and they've got three kids, and they're living in Buffalo, New York, and everything is just wonderful. But he's such a boring guy. He doesn't want to ever be on social media. He doesn't want to go on vacations. They want to give him employee of the month. No, no, let somebody else be it. And of course, it seems like he's a boring guy, but what he really wants is to keep his face out of the media. He doesn't want to be found out because he, he quit the, 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 the job and all of his former colleagues have been looking for him for 10, 15 years trying to assassinate him. Well, they find him. And, uh, you know, the family have to go on a road trip. And for about half the film, he's able to keep a secret from the family. And we all know kind of where this is going to go. There's nothing surprising in this. Every single twist, every setup, every payoff, you've seen it before. But Mark Wahlberg plays it straight. 
He doesn't play it quite like Schwarzenegger did. A little bit, a little bit, you yeah. know, broad. Somewhat tongue in cheek. Somewhat yeah. tongue in cheek. Uh, he doesn't even play it like Bob Odenkirk did, which is just really gritty and a little bit scary. He plays it like a family man. And there's something wonderful about that. It's weird to me that the two guys who became like the great movie dads are Ice Cube and Mark Wahlberg, <laughs> because those are the two that originally you would think, oh, they're not, they're just not those people, but they are. And the secret weapon in this film is Michelle Monaghan. She is wonderful. She steps up. She measures Mark Wahlberg every step of the way. When things go south, you are on her side. You are not on his. She is the moral center of the film, and she is magnetic. And it might just be one of the most wonderful performances of her career. Well, I was going to say for a wife to not just sort of be an adjunct, yeah. but to, to be at the center of the film as well, that's, that's unusual. It's, it's incredible. It is, it, is very, it is as much about her as it is about him. We're talking about The Family Plan, starring Mark Wahlberg and Michelle Monaghan. The film is rated PG-13, and it's streaming on Apple TV+. We have just about a minute yet left, and I, I wanted to ask both of you just real quickly, and wait, I'll start with you. When you run contrary in your reviews to the overwhelming majority of your peers, like on the film The Zone of Interest, yeah. which won the LAFCA Best uh, Feature Film uh, honor, how do you feel about that when you feel like you're comparatively alone? I uh, I enjoy my island. I've said <laughs> that before, and and this has happened to me on uh, many occasions. You know, there's the uh, Stephen Elliott film Eye of the Beholder, which I called one of the greatest thrillers ever made. Everyone else panned it, and then there's Breaking the Waves, which made you know top ten lists and was best film of the year. I, I made it my worst of the year. And not to be provocative, but I really, I'm, I'm okay with that. Yeah, I'm with you on I'm that. I'm okay with that. <laughs> hey, Andy, what about for you? Yeah, uh, I it is sort of a badge of pride a lot of the time, uh, particularly on films that I love that everybody else hates. Yeah, it's fun uh, to go to know, bat for is, those. Yeah. I mean, that is a great thrill to go to bat for something that, nobody else is really getting and the audience eventually does get it generally i really i i, I would have been on that island at this meeting if i had been there voting on <laughs> this right. film. andy it, klein is a uh, film critic and reviewer for av club wade major for synagogues.com for our critics i'm larry mantle in case you joined us late hear the full hour of film week wherever you get your podcasts or at las.com have a wonderful weekend next week we're back with the year end in films some big releases that are coming out for the holiday season. We'll talk with you then. As a farmer's son from a desert region in California, J.B. Hamby thinks a lot about water. I spent a lot of time digging up history, particularly about water, which is the origins of the Imperial Valley. How this 28-year-old became the youngest lead negotiator on the Colorado River ever and how he could shape the most consequential negotiations to date. Listen to Imperfect Paradise, the Gen Z water dealmaker, wherever you get podcasts.